I read a story recently of a couple that had been married for 60 years, and um, a couple that loved each other deeply, a couple that was committed to having no secrets between them except for one. And that one secret was that uh, the wife, when they first got married, had, um, had a shoebox and told her husband, she put the shoebox in the top shelf of her closet and said, look, um, you need to trust me on this, but I don't want you to bring this box up and I don't want you to look in it. It belongs to me and just set it up there. And uh, the husband respected his wife, honored his wife's request and really just forgot about the shoebox altogether until after 60 years of marriage, the wife felt gravely ill and the doctors informed the husband that really she had no hope of recovering. And so as the husband was putting her affairs into order, he goes through the closet and he finds a shoebox and he thinks that well, maybe now's the time. And so he brings the shoebox to the hospital and he asks his wife, can we open it together and can you share with me the contents? And his wife says, okay, yeah, it's time. So they open the, the shoebox together and uh, he finds inside, they find inside two crocheted dolls and a roll of bills totaling $95,000. And the husband was amazed. He was astonished. He wasn't expecting anything like that. And she began to tell, this, tell him the story of the shoebox. Apparently, the day before that she got married, her grandmother gave her some advice and told her that if she and her husband were to ever get in a fight, if they were ever to have an argument, that they should try their best to reconcile with one another all their conflicts. And yet, if they were unable to reconcile that conflict, that she should keep her mouth shut and she should crochet a doll to pour out kind of, you know, the, 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 the conflict. And so that's exactly what she had done. And her husband on hearing this was so touched by this because um, he saw that there were only two dolls in the shoebox. And to think that after 60 years of marriage, all the conflicts that, he, that they had had together, that, that she, she only saw that two of them had ever not been resolved. And the husband... Um, Tears came to his eyes. He grew even more in love with his wife. And finally, he asked about the roll of money. He said, what's with this? And his wife replied, that's the money that I collected from selling my dolls at $5 a piece to the local craft fair. <laughs> Conflict is without a doubt a feature of living in the world that we find ourselves in. We see it every day. Silly to think we can hide it. Uh, we know conflict in our homes. We know it in our marriages, and our families. We know it in our places of work. Uh, we see it at work in our culture, in the way that we talk to each other, in the way that we talk about issues that are facing kind of who we are as people together. We see it on the global stage with nations as they battle one another, right? We even find conflict in very local places, personally, in our own hearts. As the Apostle Paul writes, he says that we feel the conflict between the good that we want to do, and the evil that we find ourselves doing instead. You know, one of the things that I love about the Bible is the Bible doesn't conceal reality from us. It doesn't conceal reality. Instead, the Bible is willing to often present to us a world that is worse, <laughs> a world that is far more conflicted, a world that is far more marked by chaos than what it seems on the surface. If you've been with us this semester, then you know that that is the story in, in, in effect that Daniel himself has been telling. So if we were to step back and say, you know, what is, what's the book of Daniel about? What's the big picture? We might say conflict. It's conflict between nations. It's conflict between disciples, between followers of God and the world. 
conflict, as Paul talked about last week, between spiritual forces. Conflict between the kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God. The book of Daniel is really about conflict, and it's about the God of Israel, whom Daniel believes rules over all of it, and is determined to renew the world that he created through conflict. This morning, as we approach the conclusion of the book, our passage is about the second half of the final vision that we began last week. So we're really in the same vision that we were in last week, we're just in part two of that vision. And the introduction to the vision you heard last week in chapter 10, verse 1, there Daniel says this, he says, And the word was true, the word that came to him. The word was true, and he says, and it was a great conflict. It was a great conflict. We're going to read a portion of this long vision together this morning. It's really long, and so we're going to kind of break it up a little bit. We're going to explore from the vision... God's call on our lives in the midst of a world still marked by great conflict. Starting in chapter 10, verse 1, then we're going to skip to chapter 11, verse 2. 10, verse 1, once again, as I said earlier, is, uh, is the introduction to the vision that comes to Daniel here in chapter 11. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word, and he had understanding of the vision. Chapter 11, verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. And the kings of, excuse me, then the king of the south shall be strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. Now skipping to verses 20 through 22. Then shall arise one in his place, one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant." Now the end of the vision, verses 29 through 45. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. 
And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of, these, some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and with silver, with precious stones and with costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall ten thousand shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver, and of all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This is God's word. Um, I came across these words from a commentator this week as I was kind of preparing for Daniel 11. Here's what the commentator said. It's an old commentary, and uh, the, the wise commentary said this. He said, this chapter should be treated in Bible classes only. We do not see how it could be used for sermons or for sermon or for sermons or for general Bible studies. So basically he's saying, don't do this. So anyone want to leave and go get breakfast? It's a trick question. Don't raise your hand, right? This is a good opportunity, I think, this morning to stop for a moment and just to say something. Because I know, we, um, I know it was tough to get through that. That was only half the vision, <laughs> right? To say something about how we approach God's Word. How we approach any part of God's Word and on any occasion. I think it would be good to consider the, the words of another wise man, the Apostle Paul, as he uh, prepares to hand his ministry off to a young disciple named Timothy. This is what uh, Paul writes to his young disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul writes, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now when he says all Scripture, he really does mean all then. And you remember that when Paul is writing this, there's, there's no New Testament. So he's talking about Leviticus, and he's talking about Nahum, and he's talking about Daniel 11. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And then he says this. He says, all of it is useful. All of it is useful for correcting 
and for reproving and for teaching us and for training us in righteousness, all of it. I want you to listen to the way that God's word is described in other parts of the Bible. Isaiah says that that God's word is like rain. It's like the rain and the snow that comes down from the mountains to bring refreshment and renewal to the earth. The word that God gives us is like rain for our souls. The writer of Hebrews says that God's word is like a sharp sword. It's a double-edged sword and it's able to penetrate the joints and the marrow into the very soul of who we are, the heart's of God's people in order for God to surgically cut away sin and to heal us. All scripture on any occasion is useful. It's all God-breathed. Scripture, the Bible, is like rain. The Bible is like a sword. That is our expectation whenever we come together on Tuesday morning and we open God's word together, no matter where that word falls, even in places like Daniel 11, we expect God to provide rain and a sword to heal us, okay, to give us more grace. With those words in mind, let's talk about just for a minute what's going on particularly in this passage. And I want to give you this story, this this prophecy, this vision Um, linked to its historical context. So as you can tell, Daniel receives a lengthy vision of unnamed kings and their actions. And the vision itself spans the history that we've already explored in other parts of the book. If you're you're new here, it might be a little tougher this morning. I'm going to go over it still. but, But if you're not new and you need just refreshment, you'll hear it in this vision again. It's the history that runs from the Persian rule to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's about a span of 400 years. From the middle of the 6th century B.C. to the middle of the 2nd century B.C. And this particular vision describes the rise and fall of these unnamed kings. The rise and the fall of these unnamed kings in their attempts to preserve and expand the kingdoms that they have built with their own hands. In fact, with that in mind, one of the refrains throughout this vision, this chapter, that I've tried to highlight in the passages that we've read is this. Over and over again, you sort of meet with this in the vision. It says that one shall arise in his place. Did you notice that? And another shall arise in his place. And one shall arise in his place. You see it in verses 7, in verse 20, in verse 21, and so on. That is to say, what the vision points out is that the rise of one ruler causes the downfall of another one, and vice versa. The downfall of another one is a vacuum in which another ruler comes to rise. And you don't need names to know this, right? The vision is telling us that this is really the way that history works. It's the way that business works. It's the way that sports works. It's the way that politics works. In order for one to rise, another must fall. And Daniel reports this vision as he receives it. To be more specific, here's the historical background. In verses 2 through 4, Daniel learns that four more kings will appear on the rise in Persia. These four kings will all rise and then they will all fall. And then after them, a new stronger king will arise in verse 3. Now, scholars believe that this is undoubtedly a reference to Alexander the Great. Heard that name before? He rose and he conquered 
I mean, he expanded the territory of his dominion uh, far and wide. And yet, after verse 3, guess what happens to Alexander the Great? He too falls. Alexander will fall. And And the text says that his power will eventually pass to four of his leading generals, here in verse 4, called the four winds of heaven. In verses 5 through 20, the subject turns to the rise and the fall of the kings of the north and the kings of the south. These are the dynasties of the Seleucid kings in the north, okay, in Syria, and the, and the, uh, the, uh, the Ptolemies in the south in Egypt, Right? Two dynasties between which Judah herself is sandwiched, and she sort of bounces around like a ping-pong ball for 125 years between verses 5 and verses 20. In verse 21, the conflict between the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria culminates with one ruler. And you'll notice, you maybe even heard it as we read, that this ruler, he stands out, he's named as a contemptible person. And the ruler is singled out because of the turmoil that his rule creates specifically in Jerusalem and specifically in regard to the temple. This ruler, we're told, is someone who goes in and who loots the temple treasures. He steals from the temple and he uses that money to do whatever he wants to with, to basically expend his empire. This ruler, we're told, is someone who builds a fortress over the temple so that he can monitor all the activities, all the comings and the goings of the priests. Even worse, this ruler puts a a stop to the daily sacrifices in the temple. He cuts them out. He ends the covenant practices of the people of God. And he sets up an idol representing the Syrian version of the god Zeus, right there in the holy place. There's a name for that in verse 31. Do you catch it? It's what's called the abomination that causes desolation. The abomination of desolation. And think about that language for a moment. It would be hard to come up with a more forceful phrase, the abomination of desolation, to show how offensive this king, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, becomes historically to God and to his covenant people. Verse 36 continues the story. And this is what, where, if you, sort of, if you have a study Bible or if you look at a commentary, this is where things get particularly difficult because it's hard to know at this point whom the vision is describing. Some scholars think here in verses 36 through 45 that the vision still refers to Antiochus because the text itself doesn't signal a transition. It doesn't prepare us for a new figure who arrives on the scene. However, the reality is that the historical details just don't match up. He doesn't die as he's spreading out his palatial tents. He never conquers Egypt. The rest of the vision lines up perfectly historically, really, but this part doesn't. So other scholars think what's going on here is the vision is broadening. And the subject, though we don't get a signal in the text, the subject itself does transition. And what we have in verses 36 through 45 is a future figure with whom the war of God, excuse me, the war between the human kingdoms and the people of God will culminate. In other parts of the Bible, this figure is called who? It's called the Antichrist. The Antichrist. That's the most plausible explanation, I think. I think here's what's going on. 
The prophecy starts with the historical figure of Antiochus Epiphanes. And it continues to blow up in our imaginations. Uh, His figure continues to sort of magnify the evil that he sets apart until, until the passage is really no longer about him at all. Instead, what we're witnessing is an intensified version of the, of the evil that Antiochus came to represent. You could think of it like this. Just as Daniel and other heroes in the Old Testament can signify and help us anticipate an even greater hero to come, the Messiah, so someone like Antiochus can signify and anticipate an even greater villain to come, preparing God's people to face persecution long after Antiochus is dead, which is undoubtedly true for the people of God. Okay, most important part of the, of the, of the chapter, though, is the last verse. This is how the story ends. After all this, after 25 verses extolling the expansion of this ruler's power, I want you to notice how his reign concludes in one brief sentence. What does the vision say? Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. In other words, after saying all that we've said about him, after sort of building him up and magnifying and intensifying his evil, he is just like every other human king that has come before him. After all that, he rises only to fall. And that is the basic narrative of Daniel 11 in brief. So the question is, how is a passage like this, a passage in which sort of was closed historically, you know, a hundred years before Jesus was even born, how is a passage like this useful for us this morning? How is a passage like this reign? How is it a sword? There's a story about a legendary conversation that took place between Abraham Lincoln and a group of ministers during the Civil War. Maybe you've heard the quote before. At the conclusion of their breakfast together, one of the ministers uh, turned to Lincoln and said, Mr. President, let's pray that God is on our side. To which President Lincoln replied, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is that we are on God's side. That we are on God's side. If Daniel is primarily a book about conflict, and it's primarily about the God who reigns over that conflict, then the main challenge for us throughout the book, including this chapter, is that we would be men, that we would be a people who are on God's side. Not a people who merely pray as we leave here that God will somehow be on our side, but a people who are committed, a people whose greatest concern is to be aligned with the kingdom of God. Now, do you see the difference in those two ideas for a moment? Just take Daniel for a second. In the book of Daniel, we, we sort of continually are confronted with these warring kingdoms. You have these warring kingdoms, Persia and Greece and, and Babylon, right? And you have all these warring kings who hope that their gods or their divinities will bless their powers and their plans in order for the kingdoms that they are building to expand and endure. And yet over and over again, the book of Daniel says that's not how it works. You don't build a kingdom with your own hands and come and ask God to bless it. You seek first the kingdom of God and you ask him to bless you as you struggle to live in it. At whatever cost comes to you personally. 
Let me give you an example for a moment this morning that happens in the gospel. Three of the Snite the Gospels tell a story of a young, up-and-coming, successful man who finds Jesus. And the young man comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, sincerely, respectfully, he says, Rabbi, what must I do to have eternal life? I've got everything that I need here. I'm good-looking, well-built, fun to be with. I've got it all. How do I check this last part of the box off? How do I check this final achievement off? And and they kind of sort of go into some fun dialogue. I don't know if he thinks it's fun, but it seems like it's fun on Jesus' part. They have some dialogue. And then Jesus turns to him and said, look, the answer to your question is simple. Simple answer. All you have to do is one thing. You have to do, uh, uh, sell everything you have. Give all the proceeds to the poor. And then come and follow me. That's how simple it is. And Matthew says that the man went away very sorrowful because he had great wealth. Now, why would Jesus do that? It's so mean. I mean, you, think about it for a moment. You had this, pr- look, his, his numbers are low, right? Like he's trying to build something here. And you have this prospective, young, excited, sincere man who comes to him and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus tur- basically turns him away. Does he hate money that badly? Why would he make it so hard? Now, you see, money wasn't the issue. When the young man comes to Jesus, what he wants is assurance that God is on his side. What he wants is to know that he can live the life that he has dreamed of and built with his own hands, and he can simply tack on God's blessing to the end like a prayer before bedtime. And what Jesus gives him instead is the challenge to give his life away to the kingdom that God is building. Not to be a leader, but to be a follower. Not to be someone who is ruling, but finally to be someone who comes under his rule. That is what it means to be on God's side. That you are willing to live out the vision of God's kingdom. To pick up your cross, to die to yourself, and to follow him. And not your own vision. It means that you are willing to be ruled by him, even at great cost to yourself. Let me put it to you this, this, uh, this morning in the language of Daniel 11. You are willing to fall in order that another ruler might rise in your place. You are willing to fall in order that another ruler might rise in your place. See, this happens over and over in the life of Jesus' followers. When John the Baptist gets this, he says it like this. He says, I have to decrease in order that he might increase. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2 that I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, I have fallen. I have died. And it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who is risen and who lives in me. What they're all saying is that I had to fall. I had to fall so that Jesus might rise and rule in my stead. Now, that's a big ask. It, doesn't, it may not seem like a big ask because you've heard it so many times, and it may seem rhetorical this morning, but think about the, the rich young ruler. Certainly he thought it was a big ask. Where does someone get the confidence and the courage to do something as radical as God is asking him to do? How do we get there? Well, I want you to listen to what Paul says in the, in the, in the rest of Galatians 2.20. He says, The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And he says this, Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. See what Paul's saying? Paul is saying that I can only do this. I can only give my, wa- my life away to God's kingdom 
Because I am deeply convinced that Jesus loves me. I am deeply convinced that that, that Jesus himself loved me and gave himself away for me. I have seen, to borrow the language of Daniel 11, I have seen Jesus fall. I have seen him fall. I have seen Jesus bear the brunt of my sin and my shame and my failure all the way to the grave. I have seen him fall under the weight of God's judgment in order that I might rise as a new man in him. What Paul is saying in Galatians 2 is that before I ever had any inclination to love and to give myself away to God, I had to first see that God was loving and giving himself away for me. And men, this is the crux of discipleship. This is what it comes down to when we talk about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in our lives. This is where it all rises and falls. Can you this morning rest in the reality that Jesus loves you? That Jesus is so taken with you that in his own life he carried the weight of your destiny. That when Jesus himself fell, he fell for you. And that when Jesus himself rose again, he rose to bring you into the power of his kingdom with him forever. If you're a baseball fan, you'll know the name Satchel Paige, even if you're not, probably. Uh, Paige was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1906. He was an extremely gifted baseball pitcher, but because he was African-American, he was never allowed to pitch in the big leagues until 1948. Joe DiMaggio said that Paige was the fastest and most gifted pitcher that he'd ever faced in his life. In 1935, when um, his career began to peak, he was with the Kansas City Monarchs, and stadiums would, would get filled just to see him pitch. Stadiums that would be filled and no other, no other uh, games during the week would be filled to see him pitch. Fans would turn out to come and see Paige. And on one occasion, Paige had a, a bad inning. And so he took to the mound the next inning, and the fans started booing him and made him angry. Pretty competitive man. And so he struck the first batter out on three straight pitches. Then he turned around and he looked to his outfielders and he motioned them for them to come into the dugout and have a seat. And they came in and he faced the next batter without any outfielders and he struck him out as well. (laughs) Then he turned to his infielders and he had them go have a seat exactly where the outfielders were sitting there in the dugout. And on the field at that moment, it was Paige, the pitcher, a catcher, and a batter. Now, how embarrassing would it be for you to be that batter, right? (laughs) And as the legend goes, Paige struck the next person out as well on three straight pitches, retired the side, three strikeouts, as the rest of his team was sitting in the dugout watching him. I love that story. It's a great baseball legend. It's also a great illustration of the gospel. You see, when those players went to the dugout to take their seats, their performance, their talents, or their shortcomings didn't matter at all anymore. One of them could have been the best center fielder the world has ever known, and another could have been blind with his hands sewn to his knees. And yet the outcome would have been the same. The only thing that mattered at that moment was how good Paige was. The only thing that mattered was how good the guy on the mound was. All that mattered was his performance. He held their destiny completely in his hands. This is what Paul is telling us that he has learned to rest in as a follower of Christ. Not in his own giftedness or achievement, nor in his own shame and failure and sin, but in the performance of Jesus, in his fall and in his rise, as what determines the shape 
of Paul's life. The book of Daniel tells us over and over and over again, I hope you get it by now, that human authority and human powers and human sovereignty and human kingdoms will come and go, but what will endure is the reign of Jesus. If you remember back in Daniel 7, it is the reign of, it is the reign of the Son of Man given over to the Son of Man by the Father. And what will endure is the love that that Son has for his people. The challenge is for us to be willing to fall. Be willing to fall. Be willing to die to ourselves in order that another ruler, God's Son, might rise in our place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Do you pray that it would be rain and a sword? Pray that we would be challenged, that you would cut away, Lord, our self-centeredness, that you would cut away um, the distorted views we have of the world around us, Father, the sort of views that we have of you and that you would heal us, O Lord, and that Jesus might become larger to us. We pray that he would rise, both in our vision of his beauty and our vision of what it means to follow him. Help us to give ourselves to you. Help us to be on your side rather than praying that one day you'll be on our side. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.